Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take a couple data points, use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist and Columbia University professor, is with us in Boston. Hi, Adam. Hi, Kim. So our data point this week is $35 billion. Those are the total assets under management by Andreessen Horowitz the world's largest venture capital fund, which is based in Silicon Valley. Those assets range from small startups to established major companies, including at various times, Facebook, Twitter, Skype. The co-founder of the fund, Mark Andreessen, is widely respected for his investing prowess, but he is also respected in some very influential circles as something of a public intellectual, not only as a commentator on economic events, but as the author of several de facto manifestos about economics and technology more broadly. The world pays attention to celebrity venture capitalist Mark Andreessen is issuing a new manifesto to highlight how technology can advance humanity's achievements and flaws. In a blog post that he published... His most recent essay was actually explicitly a manifesto, the techno-optimist manifesto, it's called, and it sets out a vision for the virtue of unrestrained technological development criticizing all the various political forces that stand in the way. He, in fact, identified a lot of enemies. If I can just quote a few of them, he mentions forces that go under varying names like existential risk, sustainability, ESG, sustainable development goals, social responsibility, stakeholder capitalism, precautionary principle, trust and safety, tech ethics, risk management, degrowth. It goes on and on and on like this. The manifesto, though, was widely praised across Silicon Valley, but not only there. got a lot of attention, earned a lot of discussion, so we thought we would dive into the manifesto, but also Mark Andreessen's work more generally. So, Adam, I thought I would start by asking about venture capitalism in, in broad terms. I mean, what exactly is, first of all, the functional role of venture capitalism in the broader system of capitalism we all live under? I mean, what does this subclass of capitalists do that other capitalists can't? Or is this really more fundamentally just an expression of capitalist excess or, or froth? So venture capital is a field rife with hype and self-promotion and self-aggrandizement. It's worth saying right at the very beginning. But if one took a leaf out of their own book and was to describe what they do, I think they would say they're something like the secret source that makes capitalism great. I and mean, that would be their kind of idea about what they do, because they are the riskiest type of investment. They're the people that are willing to take a stake, not just make a loan, but take a stake in small startup firms at the very beginning with the seed capital stage, when it's just a bunch of bright people, you know, I guess classically one imagines bright young people straight out of or perhaps not even having finished college 
or you know forget college because they're actually kind of not bought in on classical educational models young dynamic thrusting entrepreneurs who have a great idea and don't have any money and the venture capitalists are the people who are willing to take a slice of the risk uh, in exchange of course also ultimately for a share in the business and then through successive funding rounds they go by a sort of alpha numerical system of funding in the end then to launch the company within five to ten years onto the stock market making everyone fabulously wealthy and earning a great return and returning the original investment by the venture capitalist to the venture capitalist who then repeats serially this process and you know if you had a single kind of narrative a single variable that would explain the relative dynamism of the u.s economy or silicon valley in particular over recent decades i think many people would point to venture capital as that driver it's a model that goes all the way back to the 1960s it originated in the tech sector with a banker at fairchild semiconductors who who span off an investment fund and, and grew that and now it's spread worldwide it's a multi-hundred billion dollar industry the volumes are hard to track and i've had very conflicting data on exactly how much we're talking about but in a good year it's 200 250 billion dollar plus at least in terms of new investment some figures go even higher than that once upon a time it was 80 percent plus us it's now closer to somewhere like between 40 and 50 percent the other big market was china I say was because a foreign money is increasingly unwelcome there and also leery of going into China and because the regime in China has cracked down on precisely the kind of businesses which have this kind of startup dynamic. But nevertheless, China, just given the scale of the tech ecosystem there, is the other big node in the global venture capital business. And certain Silicon Valley firms like Sequoia, for instance, have split their Chinese and their Western businesses. Increasingly, it's so alluring, so dynamic, so important, if you like, to the narrative of modern capitalism that a bunch of non-traditional venture capitalists. So I guess a traditional venture capitalist was a rich person who was in the business who decided to kind of you know grow new businesses. So this would be the classic Silicon Valley story. Increasingly, it's big private equity firms, which are another form of non-bank, non-stock market funding, but that didn't traditionally take stakes in startup firms. Increasingly, players like private equity are getting in on this act as well. So nowadays, the classic Silicon Valley model, the sort that Mark Andreessen personifies, is actually a minority of the overall global venture capital flow because other investors looking for this particular combination of risk and return, because the returns, if you get it right, like you know, if you had early stage shares in Google, are obviously just astronomical. And the idea here is that you take a broad portfolio of a large number of extremely risky propositions, and if only one of them comes good, you yield you know, returns that you simply can't earn anywhere else. So a wider range of investors, including even some institutional investors, investors are willing to put some small slice. And at the early stage, you know, the seed capital stage, we're talking millions, like single digit millions will make a huge difference, obviously, to a startup. So if you can get in at that stage and get it right, you really do have a winning lottery ticket. And that that model is attractive. The firms also provide business advice. They provide contacts. Silicon Valley Bank was a story about venture capital in part because the funding that they provided to the startup businesses was then deposited with that bank. So it's a networking story as well about joining the club, joining the insider group. If you look at Andreessen Horowitz's website, you'll see they offer a kind of full service 
boutique advisory service essentially for startups with recruiting with recruiting talent and and marketing and the whole work so it's a uh, yeah it's it's a very interesting model which which is much more than merely hype i mean in terms of generating value it's been spectacular the rates of return on the on the firms and their contribution to overall stock market value is is gigantic Venture capital-backed companies represent less than 0.5% of American companies created every year. So if you join this group, you're one in 200, you're super elite. But they make up nearly 76% of the total public market capitalization of companies started since 1995. So they they really are this kind of elite group of firms that gain the backing and through that then grow. So one half of 1% of all firms created 76% of the total public market capitalization of the firms which eventually are floated on the stock market. So really the inner core. Okay, that's actually what I wanted to clarify because most businesses, they're getting their start without any venture capital. They're, they're getting money, I guess, by going to banks or just other sort of standard channels. Bank loans, family connections, some other company that's in the supply chain that takes a share in them. If you make it into this group, this is where the whole legendary you know culture of pitching you know that comes out of the american startup scene originates because what you're doing at that moment is pitching your firm to a venture capitalist lion's den and all of these television shows are essentially popular enactments of the venture capital model yeah it's basically like a theatrical version of this super theatrical version of venture capital yeah reality tv version of, of venture capital okay and that's essentially what qualifies something as a startup because a startup itself is a funny word i mean it's essentially just a business but it's like when you're playing in these league you're you get to call yourself a startup rather than just a business and yeah this isn't just normal capital it's venture capital it seems like there's all these oh yeah of- no it does come with this is what i started by saying i mean it comes with a huge overlay of rhetoric and ideology it's it's very spectacular. Even dress codes, right? The whole VC fleece thing. And like there are sitcoms about it. It's really, I mean, it's the, I guess you could say the equivalent of the, you know, the, the office salary man vision of capitalism of the 50s and 60s organizational man. It's the update of that kind of icon of what capitalism is. And yet somehow the opposite. Yeah, because it's not about a bureaucratic... No, no, as we know from reading the techno-optimist manifesto. Exactly. Let's get to the manifesto then. So yeah, techno-optimism is very much in the title there of Andreessen's document, the techno-optimist manifesto. But I guess just basically I wanted to first ask, what is the optimism based on in the text itself? I mean... The unqualified values seem to be speed, growth, intelligence. He's praising all these virtues, but they're not really defined in terms of any specific human goals. It seems to, I guess, envision technology as some kind of positive but autonomous force in the world. I mean, my short answer is I think what the optimism is based on is history. I mean... That's the the narrative I read out of this, is it's a very, very classic liberal Whig, as we would call it in the historiography, like 18th century optimistic narrative of progress and its enemies, which need to be overcome. And it, you know, it goes all the way back to sort of enlightenment arguments of overcoming superstition and the resistance of the Catholic Church and so on, which has a different understanding of time. And it's all about that. I mean, the, the manifesto quotes this passage early on where it says, you know, our species is 300,000 years old. For the first 290,000 years, we were foragers. 
Then, even after Homo sapiens embraced agriculture, progress was painfully slow. So somebody born in 4000 BC could probably relate to the period of, you know, the late medieval period or the Renaissance. Then, beginning in the 18th century, many people's standard of living skyrocketed. What brought about this dramatic improvement? Well, the answer is technology. The answer is, is simply the story of, of investigation, of, of pioneering entrepreneurship. It's an absolutely classic I mean, it's it's deeply patronizing, though he's literally a line in it at one point where he says, you know, the reason why we don't live in mud huts, quote unquote, is technology. So it's, I mean, it just seems like a completely unadulterated, unabashed sort of f- philosophical anthropology, which goes back to the beginning of our species and then sees this discontinuous break beginning in the 18th century. And the extraordinary thing about it is that it seems almost timeless. I don't understand why anyone would think this is a, some sort of 2023 huge breakthrough. Even within the context of this kind of text, I mean, I just think of the kind of eco-modernism of the early 2000s, the Breakthrough Institutes, that whole critique of environmentalism that was very popular in techie, big money circles in the US 20 years ago. I mean, I, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean it's a bad song. It's just a very familiar song, it seems to me. And it it centers this this story of optimism of progress. Hmm. You know, I, I guess the reason it didn't remind me of this kind of Whig narrative that you're describing or the kind of enlightenment narrative is that it doesn't really describe any constraints that... I know, on the contrary. No, it's the opposite, right? It believes that there are no constraints that we couldn't overcome. Yeah, precisely. And I guess I think I think of those historical narratives as sort of ultimately being humanistic in a way and imagining some kind of stable state, some kind of equilibrium that one would reach that would be beneficial. But yeah, embracing, again, unqualified speed, growth, and you know, intelligence as such. Yeah, this is accelerationist, isn't it? Precisely. Yeah, yeah. There's that, that, there's that element. Yeah. It's called effective accelerationism. So I think the effective comes from effective altruism, which was the, you know, the extraordinary time unbound utilitarianism that informed the crypto people. And then they've he segued that with accelerationism, which, you know, is this idea that the real problem with progress so far is it's not gone fast enough. And there's a kind of left and a right version of that with the left version saying, you know, Marx's prophecies will come true if only we just accelerate development. And there's obviously a capitalist version. This is like a sci-fi you know, boy's own version where he says, you know, the reason why our descendants will live on the, you know, in, live in the stars. So, I mean, this is like an Elon Musk version. We're going, we're going into space, like um, on this account. I mean, I think he's hooked up, isn't he, with Musk? He's associated with Musk and Teal in various of these Silicon Valley associations. There's also, it should be underestimated, a powerful American nationalism that underpins this. You know, if this was actually a universal account, it would be one thing. Because, of, you know, if you had to single out a culture and civilization and society which had most dramatically embraced this kind of logic, it would clearly be China in the last 30 to 40 years, right, which has seen a staggering remaking of, of its social and economic conditions. You know, there's that number I love of 88% of apartments that Chinese live in haven't been built since 1990. I mean, that, that you know, he has this thing where he said, well, it's time to build. Well, forget America in that case. But no, 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 that it's far more conventional than that. This is actually a whole nationalist creed also about where things are going. They actually have a fund specifically for investing in the kind of Biden vision of a revived American industrialism. The whole thing has a very distinctly American feel because if you, one way of reading it is as a credo. 
No, it's a it's like a Christian statement of faith. We believe, we believe, I believe. You know, it's the thing that I certain I'm not very good on my Christian theology, but I remember as a as a kid, like being in church services in school where this these sorts of passages were read out. We believe in the resurrection, we believe in this, we believe in that, right? Sort of listing of items of faith. So when you ask what are the grounds for optimism, I think you could say they're faith-based. It's kind of a faith-based view of history. All right, we're going to take a quick break here and be right back to continue talking about Mark Andreessen's Manifesto on Technology. Hi, this show is sponsored by Better Help. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is, he's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, uh, you know, not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc., and uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in in in, in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And I've been meaning to tell the coach that you know life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain. And 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 it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest, and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to, or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I've got the podcast for you. Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast features great guests like Sami Khoury, head of the Canadian Government Centre for Cybersecurity, and Gulsana Mamadieva of the Ministry of Digital Transformation of Ukraine. Each episode explores the lessons of digital transformation from leaders all around the world. Head over to aka.ms slash publicsectorfuture to find all the episodes, or just search for Public Sector Future wherever you get your podcasts.
it's interesting that you're finding these more optimistic or, or for, for whatever reason, I found the whole thing scarier somehow, like uh, menacing, menacing. I mean, there's an aspect of accelerationist philosophy that you were mentioning where humanity is sort of irrelevant to the narrative. It's almost like accelerating to the point where where the acceleration is the point. Well, I think this, you, some people will say the spooky bit is the Nietzscheanism, right? I mean, he has this cod Nietzscheanism. It's like a, this is, it's almost like the villamine embrace of Nietzsche, not Nietzsche himself, who would have, I think, scorned this with like. I was going to say, that was the other thing. I actually was going to, that's a whole nother, uh, <laughs> a whole nother direction this conversation go to. But I'm pretty certain that this is uh, against Nietzschean philosophy, this idea, this imagining, like melding with technology, you know, serving technology, frankly, in, in some sense, it seems to be pretty, you know, anti the philosophy of humanity that Nietzsche imagined. Or, or, or The thing out. is that Nietzscheanism always has this double face, right? The, the, the kind of the original mad version, which is Nietzsche himself, which is, I think, corrosive of everything in many ways that this text reeks of. And then there's the cod popularized actually existing Nietzscheanism, of the late 19th century, early 20th century, the will to power edited text, you know, that was in the backpacks of German soldiers. And I think that kind of Nietzscheanism is, is definitely where we're at here. You know, it's a, it's a really, I mean, especially the embrace of state power and the, not, well, not, he would not say the state, but the national, national power. I mean, there is a kind of undergrowth of people who track these folks in Silicon Valley and believe that there's like dark fascist conspiracy in the background here. And folks like Teal, after all, dabble in extreme right-wing politics. But um, yeah, if you had to locate this, if I didn't know when this was from, I, you know, I'd be severely tempted to say 1890s Wilhelmine Germany or something. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, I was going to ask what are the intellectual precursors of this manifesto and its embrace of technology specifically, and yeah, what sort of politics emerged from that historically? I mean, you've mentioned you know, Victorian and, and Whig narratives. But to some extent, it reminded me of the Italian futurist manifesto. It was similarly a manifesto, a document meant to kind of rally the public in a specific way of the early 20th century. And similarly seemed to kind of talk uh, almost about some melding of human beings and, and technology at a time when technology was rapidly developing. Yeah. And I'm curious, does that analogy uh, sound plausible to you? And, and, and what sorts of politics did the Futurist Manifesto end up finding? I mean, he actually cites the Futurist Manifesto explicitly at one point in the text. I mean, not by name, but if you track the text gobbit that he cites, it's from Marinetti's Manifesto. So Marinetti was this avant-garde thinker of technology and culture in late 19th, early 20th century Italy. And in 1909, he published this text called The Futurist Manifesto. It's kind of, I mean, it kind of like cubism meets Silicon Valley or something like that. If you had to, or feud, if cubism meets Ford, Henry Ford. So it's this kind of combination of a radical new aesthetic with an obsession with technology and militarism and nationalism. And Marinetti does end up co-writing the fascist manifesto with Mussolini in 1919. But just to, just to give you a sense of the difference between the Marinetti manifesto and one by Mark Andreessen, and the difference also between one which seems to me inspired by a kind of Christian credo and where Marinetti is coming from, let me just give our listeners the, the experience of reading some of the Futurist Manifesto, because it's from a very different place. So this is Marinetti, the Futurist Manifesto, which appears to be a back, uh, kind of inspiration for Mark Andreessen and the Silicon Valley stuff. We have been up all night, my friends, and I beneath mosque lamps whose brass cupolas are bright as our souls because like them they were illuminated by the internal glow of electric hearts. 
and trampling underfoot our native sloth on opulent Persian carpets, we have been discussing, right up to the limits of logic and scrawling the paper with demented writing. Our hearts were filled with an immense pride at feeling ourselves standing quite alone, like lighthouses or like the sentinels in an outpost, facing the army of enemy stars encamped in their celestial bivouacs, alone with the engineers in the infernal stokeholes of great ships, alone with the black spirits which rage in the belly of rogue locomotives, alone with the drunkards beating their wings against the walls. Now, that's a manifesto. <laughs> uh, this is, a, you know, this is, I mean, you can see the similar sort of, there really is an affinity here, right? This image of, well, imagine where it starts, right? It starts under the lights of the of mosque of a mosque illuminated by the eternal glow of electric hearts trampling underfoot the opulent persian carpets like it's a it's a fin de siècle uh, i was going to say it's like a kind of dostoevskian underground man yeah or a decadent or a decadent kind of you know art nouveau kind of feel mm. it's but then it's you know it's similar then we were suddenly distracted by the rumbling of huge double decker trams that went leaping by streaked with light like the villagers celebrating their festivals which the po in floods suddenly knocks down and uproots and in the rapids and eddies of a deluge drags down to the sea so there there's this apocalyptic kind of vision right of a whole village being dragged into the sea in a in a flood i mean it's a much more complex cultural vision than this boosterish you know just let us at it it's interesting i know no there i mean there's an aspect of poetry in what you're reading there from the future yes. manifesto oh, completely is... marinetti died writing poems literally in 1944 in the last hideouts of italian fascism writing poems hymning italy's soldiers in world war ii but the social component of that imagining that that it's poetry and the aesthetics of poetry that would move the masses is exactly what is for better or worse i mean Andreessen is probably correct in thinking if writing a manifesto today, poetics is probably irrelevant. I mean, like, you know, this kind of more declarative version is what the masses are now kind of trained to respond to. I, I don't know. I mean, but it's an, that's itself an interesting, I mean, there is something parallel there in terms of accessing the public imagination at a given time. Truly. I don't really know how far Marinetti expected to reach a wider public um, or how far this was kind of also an elitist conception but I think, yeah, they, I think it's fair to say they're both writing for their intended audience. Right? Andreessen knows who his fans are and, and uh, how they read. I mean, he literally, I watched one of his, he actually has a video on writing, believe it or not. And he, he says to the, the sycophantic guy interviewing him, yeah, I think in bullet points. <laughs> and I think one thing we can say about Marinetti is maybe he thought in terms of bullets, but not in terms of bullet points, right? Andreessen literally says, I think, in terms of bullet points. I, I don't mean to be too strident on this point, though, either. But I mean, is it accidental that this manifesto, the futurist manifesto in that instance, has this affinity with fascism? I mean, it sounds like there is a kind of, again, this poetics of force and of growth as, as such in, in kind of unconstrained way. I don't know. I mean, whether whether there's a, um, a politics inherent to this style of technological embrace as such, is that a kind of accidental connection or kind of more? I mean, I think in fairness to Andreessen, like his infatuation or the infatuation of his fund with industrialism and metal bashing, they literally have images of people with rolled coils of steel and stuff. It's a very long way from where he started. And his claim to fame, after all, is Netscape. And his claim to fame is not some 
hard power, you know, this sort of image of technology as this surging power and violence, but the internet, like, um, which you could think of as the ultimate form of soft power, indeed, quite subversive of various types of power. I mean, I, th I think it would be with Marinetti, I think it's less ambiguous. The guy was into airplanes and cars and boats and guns, and it was really a very virile masculinist, um, violent notion of technology. I think it would be quite unfair to Andreessen to identify him with that kind of vision of tech, though in the retrograde space that we're currently in, which is, you know, very much of the Bidenomics movement, that sense that, you know, America will only be great again once it learns how to make things and that manifesto of Andreessen's from 2020, it's time to build. But, you know, when a Silicon Valley person says build, they're generally just speaking about software. So it's really code that they're talking about building complicated code. In the latest iteration, this American 50 or something it's called, like Dynamic 50 is their fund. Like that really is guns and hard tech and literally it has they have on their website i can't couldn't believe it like a silicon valley venture fund with images of a steel plant so as though america was going to get great again by making i mean it's really ludicrous but anyway it's there uh, so i think there's a there's a kind of a, a shift really in the in the mood which I, I guess you know the close watchers of the politics of silicon valley think indeed is ominous and does foretell you know, Thiel was a big backer of Trump. We know all the ambiguity of Musk's politics. Yeah, it's interesting that the yeah that the reactionary imagination early in the 20th century was futurist explicitly, and now it's kind of this retrospective, nostalgic imagination. But anyway, I guess uh, to move on a bit, I, I did want to ask finally about Andreessen's yeah broader record uh, of social commentary. I mean, you yeah, you mentioned the other manifestos he's written, It's Time to Build. Also, there was one called Why Software is Eating the World that got a lot of attention. So this is added to that list. And I wanted to ask about, yeah, how this aligns with his role as venture capitalist. I mean, what makes it exactly intuitive to us or, or himself, frankly, that he would repeatedly produce social manifestos as someone whose job otherwise is uh, venture capital. I mean, are venture capital firms in some way the, the native site of intellectual production within the system of capitalism? I mean, they do have a function in predicting the future. So is that a kind of, you know, de facto aligned with intellectual production in some way? I think that's a very good point. And I think it, in this case, also has a political edge, right, which shouldn't be underestimated. And because this, this document, this techno-optimist manifesto, is a highly political document, highly political in the kind of base Schmittian sense in which politics consists in defining who your enemies are. And it does that really emphatically. I mean, it's quite spectral. It's quite unclear who exactly he thinks are the powerful forces holding back technological development in the United States. But um, he has this range of enemies that you read out at the beginning, which range from, you know, limits to growth folks from the 1970s through to sustainable development, which is hardly a, which is hardly an anti-growth ideology or highly growth, uh, high, uh, high, an anti-growth politics, rather on the contrary, actually. So he, the, one of the reasons he writes these manifestos is presumably because they, they somehow have managed to convince themselves they're in an embattled position in which they need to assert these truths about the world. And, you know, I think it may have something to do with the fact that like the eco-modernists of 20 years ago, the text, you know, has one particular technology which they think of as being quintessentially representative of 
you know, the anti-tech backlash. And it isn't what you'd think, because it clearly isn't any of the digital stuff. It's atomic power. And that, I think, is at the core of this. And when we've done episodes about atomic power, we've had some of this backlash from listeners who are indignant about my skeptical position and, you know, the kind of questions you ask about atomic power as though we're not really fully bought in on it. And I think there are lots of reasons for not being fully bought in on it. But the way in which nuclear power was hobbled in the view of its exponents by regulation and excessive preoccupation with security and the precautionary principle. I think if you actually were to, you know, do a genealogy of where a lot of this kind of friend foe kind of thinking comes from, I think it comes out of out of the struggles over nuclear power and its future. And you know, ultimately, of course, what has to drive a techno-optimist vision is a superabundance of energy, because that's the common denominator of almost all of the kind of growth that we need. And they can't, they're not climate denialist, but they just refuse to accept that it really provides any actual limit, because if we can innovate, then we can work our way out of here. And of course, the technology, which in their minds will provide limitless clean energy is nuclear fission and ultimately nuclear fusion, both of which feature in this manifesto. And I think if you were therefore to kind of, if you were going to go back and try and figure out what it is, so if you like the classic neocon would say it's welfare and the welfare state or the excessively high marginal tax rate, these would be the kind of things which drive their thinking. The Laffer curve is saying, cut the tax rate and growth will take off and your revenue will go up on anti-welfareists will point to the you know, the degeneracy of society and the single mother living on welfare that is the kind of icon of everything they oppose. Others now might go to the China shock and say, the thing that we want to do is overcome the China shock, right? That would be kind of the Bidenomics narrative. I think for these folks, it's really nuclear power that's at the heart of, of all of this. And that's why you have to write manifestos, because there, there is an example of a technology that could set us free, which in their mind has been hobbled and we cannot afford to have that happen again. And indeed, they want to throw open the question of the future of nuclear power all over again. And so I think that's thinking about it. I think that's where it ultimately, I mean, you could, you know, you could reduce a whole bunch of other smaller scale arguments, like the fact that venture capital is full of unbridled, undisciplined egos who are autodidacts and, you know, who, who get rich and then spend a lot of time reading in a wild kind of way. And, and I mean, his enthusiasms have included all sorts of things recently, including master slave morality, the, the PMC, the, you know, the professional managerial class. I mean, there's just like a whole series of intellectual enthusiasms he gets, and that's in the nature of venture capital, that it just churns through ideas and pitches with very little commitment to any one of them. But I think if you dig in, I think you'll find this this thing about nuclear power as the real driver. Interesting that, first of all, that genealogy, that it all comes back down to nuclear power, which you're, I think you're right, that there is some fascination that exceeds the practical bounds of that technology. I mean, you know, obviously Oppenheimer was the big film uh, of this past year, probably in line to win all these Oscars, et cetera. And there's just some primal interest in, and I think that that specific technology, which is different than the digital technologies that we associate now with Silicon Valley. And yet there's some, some link there. But yeah, obviously Anderson probably has all of this time and wherewithal to, to indulge his intellectual interests. But, but there's something so practical about how he channels it all into these manifestos. I mean, there's like, he could be just writing poetry for himself, but he's clearly, clearly not. But uh, I do think we should end this conversation here for now. We'll be back next week. 
Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It's produced by Claudia Tady, Laura Rossbrow-Tellum, Rob Sachs, and Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested in news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Listeners to Ones and Twos even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code TWOS at checkout. That's T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love getting your feedback. You can leave voice messages on the Ones and Twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com or email us, podcast at foreignpolicy.com, or you can tweet us. That's at Ones and Twos Pod. Thanks very much for listening, and we'll be back in your feed next week. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. 
or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador. Coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.